Hello, everyone. Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Zoe Julian. She is an OBGYN in Birmingham, Alabama. I will let her tell us more about herself. Great. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Max, for inviting me to join you on your podcast today. Um, as you said, my name is Zoe Julian. I am an OBGYN currently practicing at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And I also spend the majority of my time there as a postdoctoral research fellow in the Clinical and Population Health Sciences Fellowship. Very nice. Uh, and Dr. Julian, one of your interests, as, as far as I know, is reproductive justice education. Yes, definitely. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit more uh, about what led you to you know, work in that space? Certainly. Um, so I came to learn about reproductive justice actually during my OBGYN residency training um, in San Francisco, California. And it was there that I had the privilege, quite frankly, of interacting with a lot of future mentors, um, colleagues, um, trusted friends outside of medicine, like Dr. Monica McLemore. Um, But truly, I was first introduced when um, one of my dear friends and mentors, Dr. Sarah Whetstone, bought me Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. And I think anyone who is invested in sexual reproductive health in the United States in any capacity um, should consider that text required reading because it really breaks down um, the really violent intersecting systems of oppression that impact especially poor black and brown women um, and birthing people um, at every single step of their reproductive lives. Um, and so in reading that book, it was my first introduction to reproductive justice, not only as a, a framework to understand these inequities, but also as a truly a social justice movement, um, rooted, started, and uh, persistently moved forward by the efforts of uh, Black women and other people of color. Um, and so that having that initial education through Dorothy Roberts' text, as well as others um, that I continue to kind of seek and crave for my own supplemental education, um, really helped to provide a foundation for the critical lens with which I think about the care I provide to patients, but also the research that I hope to conduct. Um, And I, I, started to incorporate that understanding in a practice of learning and unlearning um, as I continued through my own residency training. So during my time in residency, I I started to think about what types of extraclinical activities I wanted to get involved with and had time for and felt passionate about and um, in learning about medical education, pedagogy, and frameworks like structural competency, other justice-informed frameworks, I started to get invested in how to bring um, the best lessons of reproductive justice and how to incorporate them in a meaningful and accountable way um, in helping to educate and train the future healthcare workforce. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like? So, you know, you just recently uh, completed your residency, um, and you were a medical student, you know, 
four or five years ago. What does reproductive justice education look like? You know, what's that landscape like right now across the country? Yeah, great question, Max. So for myself, it, reproductive justice was not a formal part of my medical education um, or clinical training. Mm -hmm. As I described, it was something that I learned about from other people within my academic institution, but really sought to self-educate mm -hmm. um, and, and go directly to primary texts from those who are active in the reproductive justice community, who are activists, who are leaders, who are the foremothers, if you will, of this movement. Um, and I think that that's really critical that there always be um, direct links and ties to the origins of the movement, mm -hmm. especially as it becomes more and more popular for folks within, especially the family planning field and OBGYN more generally, to start trying to incorporate, incorporate principles of reproductive justice into their curricula, into their practice, and in the way they train um, medical students, residents, nursing students, midwifery students, et cetera. Um, so part of how I think about a responsible way of incorporating this type of education moving forward, like I said, is in a way that always, is always rooted in the expertise and lived experience of folks most greatly impacted within marginalized communities mm -hmm. by these interacting systems of oppression. And so one of the ways that I'm attempting to do that is through a curriculum that I call Structures Yes, itself. that's what I was going to um, ask you about. Yes, yes. So it is, it is a dynamic work in progress, mm -hmm. but its uh, current iteration is available up online. Um, if you just Google Structures and Self or head to the Innovating Education in Reproductive Health website, um, it's up on the homepage. And that curriculum is not a reproductive justice curriculum um, solely, but rather it's a curriculum rooted in structural competency as a way to teach uh, clinical trainees about structural and social determinants mm -hmm. of health, um, and certainly incorporates aspects of reproductive justice, trauma-informed care, um, and critical race theory in those initial four modules or lessons. Got it. Um, so that, yeah, so that material is really meant for learners to use in a self-guided fashion. Um, but as I continue to think about implementation of the curriculum in more formalized settings, it's definitely an intention of mine to do that in a community participatory way. Um, and the development of the curriculum very much rests on the expertise and constructive criticism of reproductive justice advocates um, and community members at every step. So. I think what a lot of medical educators, especially, but health professions educators generally struggle with is that these types of concepts were not a part of their mm -hmm. training and they don't have expertise in how to teach them. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's so critical um, that if you see value in these movements, frameworks, theories, and practices, that you really learn from the experts and have experts come and teach your trainees um, and those experts are not within the halls of academia most right. often. Um, they are within the community. And that expertise has to be honored. It has to be compensated um, and really, really valued. Mm -hmm. 
So this makes me think of a recent, this is kind of more on the theory side of things, um, recent paper that I came across that describes this phenomenon called a conscripted curriculum. The paper is authored by Lauren Olson. She's a sociologist at Temple here in Philadelphia. Basically where in her studies, she's finding that oftentimes physicians, you know, when teaching about health inequality or inequities, rely more on their students who are from minoritized backgrounds to, you know, sort of like be conscripted teachers or co-teachers in ways that is not typically the case when, say, for example, teaching about, you know, the sort of like hardcore sciences, biochemistry, physiology, and whatnot. And so that sort of not bringing like expertise on the topic and like relying on students who or, or trainees in general who are kind of doing their own self-learning is something that is kind of widespread in medical education. Yeah, I find that um, unsurprising um, and really problematic <laughs> in some really significant ways. I think um, one of the phenomena that I find really interesting is as as we are attempting to diversify the future healthcare workforce, um, and that there's pushes in all health profession training institutions for increased diversity, um, and diversity inclusion is now becoming a sexy, popular <laughs> um, initiative within health professions education, that what I think is perhaps more important, if not at least concurrently essential, is for institutions to really examine the structures and policies and practices in place, the anti-racist, especially the anti-Black racist um, policies that don't exist, and the ways that our current uh, health professions training environments really um, further tokenize the quote-unquote diversity that it so desperately is recruiting and attempting to retain. Um, and I mean, that paper, I think very much speaks to the issue that occurs, the, the dissonance that occurs when, um, majority well-meaning, well-intentioned, um, white educators, cisgendered, heterosexual, you know, male, all of, all of those privileged identities, which the majority of folks in academia hold, at least to some degree. Um, are attempting to step into territory that they don't hold expertise in and then relying on their students, whose job it is to learn and not to teach, um, are placed into these positions of expertise that they don't hold. This is why I think there really has to be some concerted purposeful accountability taken by health professions educators about what they do and they don't know and the importance of hired, compensated experts being brought in to teach topics that they may not have um, enough experience or expertise in themselves and not relying on their learners to, to fill that void. Now, when it comes to um, you know, education related to reproductive justice, this platform that you created, although as you mentioned, it's not necessarily, it's not specifically a reproductive justice platform, but rather, uh, aimed at um, sort of providing learners with tools to be more um, like aware of structures that uh, you know that continue to sort of like recreate reproduce inequalities uh, and continue to oppress historically underserved 
um, populations. I'm curious, you know, in the process of rolling this out, what are the steps that you and your team are taking to sort of make sure that this can be widespread, that uptake um, happens, um, you know, at a large scale? Yeah, great question, Max. And we've we've been thinking a lot about um, that very topic, about how to responsibly um, disseminate the content that we have created um, and implement it in meaningful community accountable ways. So <clears throat> one thing we did when we first announced the curriculum was we did so um, through a social media campaign where we partnered with um, the community partners who were a part of the development process, including members of Black Women Birthing Justice Project, um, Elizabeth Dawes Gay with Sisu Consulting, and uh, one of the co-founders of Black Mamas Matter Alliance, and others, um, in order to make sure we were uh, announcing our curriculum with transparency, and not just through the more traditional avenues of um, academic channels but one that gave access to our content beyond those traditional silos. So that's one strategy that we used um, in order to increase access and availability. In addition, the curriculum is available um, free and open access for anyone to interact with. Um, you don't even need to make an account. There's no payment that's required currently for the videos as they stand, and that was also done with intention to help decrease barriers, especially for learners who are in academic institutions that may be more conservative or not yet incorporating topics of social and structural determinants in their formal curricula. Um, and then as we move forward, as I was mentioning before, we're also hoping to incorporate um, and do some implementation studies about what are the appropriate strategies for which to teach clinical learners about these topics with this content? Is it in a traditional didactic classroom setting? Is it not? Is it in a completely different setting? Um, is it best facilitated by academicians and clinicians or is it better facilitated by social justice activists um, and those already steeped in the language of um, structural competency and social determinants and structural determinants of health? So we hope to do some really meaningful investigation first um, before creating recommendations for educators and students alike about how to most effectively use this material and others like it. Oh, that's really exciting. So you have like a multi-year plan here as, uh, as far as I'm hearing. Um, and so, so you're, you know, you, your team are going to study um, basically how, how to best implement this. Um, I wonder, whether uh, other, you know, other sort of like big structures like the AAMC um, or like the AMA, or, you know, those structures that are that sort of like have a big stick in medical education, whether they're, they're, they'd be receptive, right, to like even co-hosting this platform on some of their, um, some of their outlets. Uh. Yeah, I think that's, that would be an ultimate um, next step is I think one of the things that becomes challenges for many who are trying to educate in this realm is that often social medicine, structural and social determinants of health, health equity, all become optional topics, elective topics, kind of fringe on the 
outskirts of um, formal curricula in medical schools, nursing schools, and other health professions training programs. Um, and certainly, you know, we are looking to disseminate our curriculum development process as well as the videos themselves through um, more tra more traditional peer reviewed um, peer reviewed mechanisms. And so, there's a couple of publications. Uh, in preparation right now um, for submission to medical education journals and uh, other avenues um, where health professions educators seek uh, content as well as um, evidence about development processes. So I'm hoping um, through those channels, which include both publications and uh, conferences that we're able to disseminate amongst the health professions educator community um, in a, in a uh, kind of more traditional way, but to do that in parallel with some of these other strategies. Um, uh, and my, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it would be a dream to have an organization like the AAMC or the AMA, which I know is doing some work around um, redesigning residency education and, and uh, has some grant making efforts there with institutions to reconsider new ways um, of of uh, innovating health professions educations for the future workforce. <clears throat> but I think um, as evidence of some, some things in the popular media recently and responses from um, academicians and clinicians of the older guard, we still have a long way to go before social and structural determinants become part of the mainstream in our education. Um, and, and not just those topics in silo, but those topics that are meaningfully intertwined with anti-racist and anti-white supremacist um, concepts within our educational our educational curricula. So I think we this is a first step, a curriculum like this is a first step and um, by no means is, is mine the only one out there. Like you mentioned too, MedEd Portal is a great resource for health professions educators. And that's the um, peer reviewed database of the AAMC that has a lot of content. Um, and there are other similar databases like it that also uh, hold content on a host of different um, health issues, some specific to, to certain communities and others more broad, like structures and self. Um, so the, we don't have a dearth of resources. I think what we mm -hmm. struggle with is how to meaningfully incorporate them into formal curricula um, and really some meaningful in investigation on who is the best person, who are the best people to be doing this and how. Mm -hmm. And so that's some of the evidence base that I'm hoping to contribute to in the future. Fantastic. Um, so, you, you know, in my time in medical school, I felt like um, one of the, the few ways that turned the quote unquote old guard um, physicians around when it comes to embracing uh, some of this work as part of, you know, as being meaningful, important aspects of medical education is kind of tying it to things that they like care about. So if any of them are listening, would you share with me, you know, in what in your mind or also just based on the awareness of evidence out there, how, you know, embedding this curriculum can ultimately address some of the um, shortcomings and issues that we face in, in healthcare and, and healthcare education just on the daily, both from like the experience of trainees, but also patients' experiences. Certainly. I think 
what has become more and more to the forefront within clinical practice is the importance of quality care. Um, and a lot of that has been spearheaded or, or is consequence of the Affordable Care Act, um, of the consistent conversations about healthcare policy reform and how to improve quality care for all and not just for those who currently can afford it. Um, and I think you can't have quality care unless it's equitable care. And so as a result of that, while the current healthcare service provision landscape is moving towards value-based payment, moving towards um, equitable measures as far as health outcomes is concerned, while more and more attention is being paid to studying interventions for rectifying health inequity and healthcare disparities rather than just the identification of those differences, so too must our health professions training evolve. Um, it is the obligation, I think, of any educational institution to prepare its trainees for the evolving workforce issues before them. And if we continue to train um, the future healthcare workforce using old dogma that is not going to serve them for the reality of practice that lies after their training is complete. And so I think even furthermore, it's, it's also the obligation of us as health professions, educators, um, that we're indebted to the public. Uh, there's, a, there's a public trust. I mean, our institutions, residency programs, those things are funded by taxpayer dollars. And so we are ultimately accountable to the greater public and society to provide a workforce that can appropriately and equitably care for everyone. Um, and so I think it requires a really huge helping of humility <laughs> amongst our professional community. Um, to be okay with saying, these are things that I don't know. But in the spirit of lifelong learning, which I think is a, a value held by most, most in our fields, um, that that requires humility. It requires you to say, I don't know before you can learn. Um, and really resting value and trust into those who do. So I'm hopeful that with that underlying value in mind, um, with those underlying values in mind that that we can really make some significant changes and moves and innovations in the way that we train the future workforce. I'm equally hopeful. So thank you so much for those insights. I really appreciated having you on the podcast and learning about the work that you're doing. And I, I really look forward to seeing um, where Structures and Self is heading next. And I, you know, I hope to see it like in residency curricula by the time I get to residency. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks so much, Max. Sincerely, I'm, I'm so impressed and a fan of the podcast. And again, I really appreciate you inviting me to join you today. Pleasure was mine. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.